Turkey says it has tapes of the murder and torture of a Washington Post columnist at the hands of the Saudis. How should the U.S. respond? That's story today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. The disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi is creating geopolitical ripples as Turkey works with U.S. officials over the affair, and this morning orders the release of a U.S. pastor detained there. We'll have the latest. Also, counting casualties in the wake of Hurricane Michael, after Hurricanes Harvey and Maria, why the numbers don't seem to add up. Plus, the week in politics with the Texas Tribune and a whole lot more. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this October 12th, 2017. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. Normally, we might not lead our program with this sort of headline, but there are big reasons to do so today. As we're heading into the studio, Turkey announced it would release a U.S. pastor held on spy charges. Andrew Brunson is an American who'd been sentenced to more than three years, one of two dozen Americans detained after the 2016 failed coup. He'd been charged with espionage and aiding terrorist groups and had been at the center of rising tensions between Turkey and Washington, which had been pressing hard for his release. So why his release now? Well, experts suggest it's no mere coincidence that this comes in the wake of the disappearance of a columnist for the Washington Post who hasn't been heard from since entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul a few days ago. Now Turkish officials have told their U.S. counterparts they have audio and video evidence that the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a resident of the U.S. and longtime Saudi dissident, was killed and his body dismembered inside the Saudi consulate complex. This renewed cooperation between Turkey and the U.S. marks a thaw between the two countries, and it adds to pressure on Washington to take action against a longtime ally, the Saudi government. Now a Texas-based national security specialist and former White House advisor who's worked in the past on the U.S.-Saudi relationship says it's time for the Trump administration to take decisive steps against the government in Riyadh. William M. Bowden is executive director of the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin, and his piece for foreign policy calls for a pushback against our longtime oil-rich partner. Professor M. Bowden, welcome back to The Standard. Thank you so much, David. Great to be with you. Uh, you knew... Jamal Khashoggi, as I understand it, had dinner with him at, at one point, right? Yes, I, I, we weren't we weren't close friends, but back when I was working on uh, Saudi policy for the State Department and National Security Council, I had traveled to Saudi Arabia a few times and had uh, dinner with him over there. Uh, how does how does his uh, presumed death and torture, if we are to believe the latest uh, round of stories, how is that a slap in the face to the United States? Well, on, on several levels. First and most fundamentally, he was um, most recently living in the United States. He was a resident of the United States. He had sought refuge here from the growing repression in Saudi Arabia. And so even though he wasn't a formal U.S. citizen, he was he was under under our, our protection. Um, uh, second, uh, you know, the United States, uh, even while we maintain a strong relationship with Saudi Arabia, we also stand for certain values of human dignity and, and human rights. And so uh, and then third is he disappeared 
disappeared and was probably murdered on the territory of Turkey, a NATO ally of ours. Uh, and so in all three ways, his protection by the United States, the affront to our values, and then this happening on the territory of one of our, our allies, um, it was a very brazen uh, slap at the United States by the Saudi government. I want to understand something and, and focus in on something that, that you just mentioned. They are one of our most important allies, and this is something that uh, President Trump has, has underscored when he's been asked to comment on this affair. Uh, you are suggesting that there should be not just a strong response from the United States, but retaliatory measures. Like what? Yeah, uh, I, I'm going to leave the details of this up to our, our current government, but I think we should look at things like uh, perhaps suspending um, uh, some of our, our arms sales to them, uh, perhaps expelling some senior, senior Saudi diplomats, including the uh, Crown Prince's younger brother, who's their ambassador to the United States, uh, perhaps uh, withholding visas of other Saudi officials that we deem responsible for this. I certainly think with next week's major investors conference in Riyadh that the United States should not send Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. We need to show the Saudis that this sort of uh, bad behavior will also hurt the investment climate there. You mentioned suspending military contracts. In fact, the president said yesterday that he was worried about losing over $100 billion uh, in, in arms uh, trade uh, with Saudi Arabia. In fact, saying that uh, Russia uh, could step in and they would be the key beneficiaries of, of such a move. What do you think? Well, uh, first to make clear, I don't want to end the U.S.-Saudi relationship overall. Okay, They are an important partner in the region. I'm just saying it needs to be recalibrated. And the fact is the Saudis need the United States more than we need the Saudis. And so we have that leverage here. So I think just doing some of these signals uh, to Mohammed bin Salman that he can't take American support uh, unconditionally or, or for granted uh, would would rein, rein him in. Uh, at the same time, we do need to maintain the relationship because of the shared threat of Iran, because of uh, uh, the uh, energy supplies uh, because of counterterrorism. So we, we certainly need to balance all that. But there's a way to do that while also showing our very strong displeasure at his um, reckless behavior. What does this incident say about uh, Saudi Arabia and about its relationship with the United States from their perspective? Uh, I think it uh, shows that Mohammed bin Salman has just been getting very arrogant and reckless in his rule. He's he's eliminated all domestic dissent to him, so he's surrounded by you know, these court sycophants. And I think he probably thought he could get away with this just fine, as he'd gotten away with a lot of his other mis misbehavior. Um, but I think he's now realizing by the overwhelmingly negative reaction, um, certainly by how the United States and Turkey are now coming together on this, uh, that he that he's overreached. Willem Bowden is executive director of the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also served on the National Security Council and at the State Department, where he has worked with officials in the Saudi government. Professor Bowden, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Always good to be with you, David. Thank you. As what was once Hurricane Michael dissipates over the southeast, officials in the Florida panhandle continue to evaluate its impact. The images show some communities utterly leveled. The death count at last check stood at 12, but that's expected to rise. After other recent storms like Hurricane Maria, which hit Puerto Rico and Harvey here in Texas, we're seeing that the official casualty counts don't always add up. Indeed, a storm death in one state might not be counted as such in another. So writes Sherry Fink, a correspondent for The New York Times. Why does it matter, these differences in what qualifies as a storm-related death? It matters from an individual level because survivors 
in a federally declared disaster can be entitled in some cases to funeral assistance. So it can have an impact on, you know, that person's loved ones, all the way to how officials prepare for disasters, how public health officials try to keep people safe after disasters. That's the importance of keeping track of these things, of understanding why it is that people die so that hopefully you can intervene and and prevent those deaths and future disasters. But I suppose there's also, and it has to be admitted, a political dimension here too, as we've seen in the aftermath of Puerto Rico. Well, absolutely. Uh, it, it has <laughs> This number of the death counts has become extremely political because the long-held death toll was 64. And then public health research, you know, looking at statistics, showed that close to 3,000 more people died than would have been expected otherwise. So there was a real you know, a big, big, big gulf between official numbers and what we think actually happened. So let me understand why it is that there isn't a consensus uh, on how you count deaths in the wake of a storm. Uh, surely there would be federal guidelines. I mean, the Centers for Disease Control? Correct. There are some federal guidelines. They were put out last year after Hurricane Maria based on, um, you know, a convening of lots of experts to look at this issue. But this is a long held problem. It goes back many years and researchers have been writing about it for many years. So this new guide that the CDC put out is an attempt to get right to the very person who fills out the death certificate and help them understand for purposes of keeping track of these things, let's have everybody do this in a standard way. And here's the big issue. I think we can all understand what a direct storm death is. That is what we're seeing today with people who were killed when the winds blew and a tree fell on them. Or, you know, very tragically, all the people who are going out and driving into floodwaters and drowning that way. The tricky part is what they're calling so-called Uh, indirect death. So this could be somebody who they rely on oxygen and they couldn't get their oxygen or, uh, you know, they were having a heart attack, but an ambulance couldn't get to them. And so what the CDC has recommended is that those be counted as storm deaths too. But currently those are typically missed. So um, you you spoke with uh, Harris County's medical examiner's uh, office in Houston, uh, and of course they received a lot of attention, certainly in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Did they explain what their policy or rationale was toward toward the use of the CDC guidelines? They did. I went back to the Harris County medical examiner's office and said, now that the CDC guide is out, are you going to change how you look at these indirect deaths. They said, no, we need to keep doing things the way we've been doing them. If you loosen this definition, where is the line? And so we'll just make sure that all that information on, you know, from our investigations are, are in somebody's records. And um, unfortunately, though, if if it's not recorded on somebody's death certificate, if the storm itself or the natural disaster or human disaster in the case of terrorist attack, mm-hmm. if that's not mentioned on a death certificate, it becomes harder for officials trying to go through statistics to really detect the relationship. And so it all does have to start with the individual coroner, medical examiner, or doctor. And I found that just everybody I spoke to for this article had a different way of thinking about it. 
tallying the dead, why a storm death in one state might not count in another. It's a very thought-provoking article by Sherry Fink, who is a correspondent for the New York Times. We'll link to it at texasstandard.org. Ms. Fink, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Thank you. Wells Dunbar is away monitoring social media. The Standard's own Michael Marks. Happy Friday, sir. Thank you, David. Beto O'Rourke campaign offices evidently looking more like Scrooge McDuck's swimming pool these days. Mm. Campaign finance reports from the third quarter of 2018 show record fundraising by the El Paso Democrat in his Senate race against incumbent Ted Cruz. O'Rourke raised over $38 million in the past three that's months. That's kind of remarkable. No PAC money either. No, th- that's what he says. His campaign says that's the most ever in one quarter of a Senate race. Cruz isn't exactly hurting for cash. His campaign raised over $12 million over the same period. Will it translate to votes, though? Over on the Texas Standard Facebook page, Jerry Harp from Linden says only if Texas progressives show up in the polls in massive numbers. Not likely this time. Fundraising totals aren't a surprise, though, to Robert Flood says amazing how Texas is supporting a person who speaks directly to them with respect, civility, and inclusiveness. Well, we would love to hear what you think about all this or anything else that's making news in your neck of Texas. Reach out to us, won't you? At Texas Standard, Michael Marks will be back in 35 minutes. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Dr. Jonathan Oliver, who's researching solutions to reduce concussion damage among athletes. TCU, lead on. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. A Democrat challenging Republican incumbent Michael McCall for the 10th Congressional District of Texas says Waller County officials are placing an undue burden on student voters. This after the county announced Prairie View A&M students who registered as living on campus need to change their addresses on voting day. Dalia Jones of KUT Austin has more. A field director for District 10 Democratic nominee Mike Siegel was detained after delivering a letter to Waller County officials calling for a change to the policy Siegel argues would result in voter suppression. Thousands of students who registered to vote with a campus address now have to fill out a change of address form at polling places. Students, politicians and activists say they're concerned about long lines, confusion and frustration on Election Day. Beth Stevens is the legal director of the voting rights program at the Texas Civil Rights Project. What? was already bad and and difficult for students who did nothing wrong has pivoted toward even worse by arresting a individual simply for interacting with county officials staff and so i hope that waller county can kind of stop here and ameliorate the effects on the students. The sheriff's office says the staffer failed to identify himself. Despite social media rumors, the Waller County Elections Administrator says no student voter registrations have been rejected. Officials also say a change of address event will be held next week. I'm Delia Jones for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Breaking up is hard to do, Neil Sedaka once said, and sometimes breakups happen in very awkward ways, over dinner in a public place, over text, or even on social media, perish the thought. Well, this week, Steve Fisher, an El Paso attorney, posted a breakup notice at the Texas Tribune's TribTalk.org commentary section titled, Y'all, We Need a Divorce. 
But the relationship he's wanting to ditch is one between his hometown and the rest of Texas. His argument? That El Paso has been neglected by the rest of the state for the last 168 years, culminating in a certain disaffection many El Pasoans feel today. So, is he a lone El Pasoan feeling this way about the Lone Star State, or indeed is this something bigger? For more on that, we're joined by another individual from the Sun City. Richard Panetta is director of the Sam Donaldson Center for Communication Studies at the University of Texas, El Paso. Professor Panetta, thanks for speaking with us on The Standard. Great to be here with you, David. Uh, do you agree with Steve Fisher here that, that, in fact, there is a sense of disaffection among El Pasoans when it comes to the state of Texas? Well, I think that uh, Attorney Fisher is is right to an extent that, that in El Paso, I think we do feel a little bit distant from the rest of the state. I, I guess uh, Steve has sort of become the Jonathan Swift of West Texas with his own <laughs> modest proposal. Um, I think in reality, uh, what what I think is really happening in El Paso now is that, that people are, in this last period, seeing some real affection for the community. We have uh, Beto O'Rourke barnstorming the state. Uh, you've got Aaron Jones with the Green Bay Packers who who flashes a 915 after he scores a touchdown. Mm-hmm. You have uh, rapper Khalid winning awards. Uh, you, he won one this week and, and at the very end threw a uh, shout out, as he said, to the 915 and to uh, even to Congressman O'Rourke. So I, I think we're in a, in an interesting renaissance. But I think that that what Fisher is hitting on is, is something that's been around in El Paso for a long time. And I think the distance really does uh, create some some gap for El Pasoans in, in relationship to the rest of the state. I guess what he's saying here is that the geographic distance has historically allowed El Pasoans to be sort of taken for granted. I, I think that's true. I mean, I think that there's there's even some recent history where in the city of El Paso, they've had to push through a, a court of inquiry a couple of years ago to, to get funds that were uh, normally denied El Paso in, in relationship to other parts of the state. I think that there are uh, certainly some shortfalls in the, the way that the state uh, thinks about El Paso. Uh, we, for the longest time, had had a state legislative delegation that would, that would often win these uh, sort of uh, awful awards from, from different states publications for, for lack of effort. Uh, so I do think that there's a history of either isolation or even sort of a self-imposed exile from the rest hmm. of the state. But I do think that that's a, a state of mind. I think that, that the more flexibility people have, and quite frankly, the easier it is to travel. I mean, you can get to the state capitol now in a 45-minute flight. But I, I do think that the, the fact that we're on the you know furthest edge of the state, it's faster for me to drive to Los Angeles, quite frankly, than it is to drive to Houston. Well, there's that. Uh, but I can also remember many trips going down I-10 from California, for instance, to uh, Austin and passing by that Lone Star State sign on the highway and thinking, oh, finally, I've made it to Texas. Uh, I think a lot of people who are not in El Paso uh, still think of Texas as very much a Texan kind of city. And yet I've talked to plenty of El Pasoans who have a real strong affinity for their neighbor, New Mexico. I think it's true in in the sense that we like the we like the proximity, but I do think that culturally we're still rather distant from New Mexico, and I think hmm. that's uh, really evident to me anytime that I cross the state line up to even Las Cruces. I think there's a, a different sensibility about the border. They're they're not on the the physical border, at least in the metropolitan areas. Uh, I think there's a sense of size disparity. I mean, if if in fact uh, Fisher's proposal were to come true, we would suddenly become the largest city in the state of New Mexico. 
Mexico. I'm not sure that anyone would uh, would shine on that. Uh, but we also have a, a different sensibility, I think, in terms of culture. So the Mexican American culture in El Paso, influenced largely by the border, is distinct. You know, even if you go into northern New Mexico, where uh, culturally they still talk about being Spanish as opposed to uh, Mexican or, or even uh, indigenous. And so wow. I think that there's those cultural differences. I think that's also hard to overcome. I think it's it's an interesting idea. But I thought the, the other thing that was funny about, about Fisher's piece was the idea that we essentially would make this decision. Uh, I, I'm sure that that is probably the most Texas thing that anyone in New Mexico has heard, that we would invite <laughs> ourselves to the party and we would be the number one guest. <laughs> I certainly understand the irony that you're, that you're pointing out there. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, you were referring to this at the beginning. There's a sense, I think, back further east that El Paso is enjoying a kind of moment. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the the biggest, most telling factor, and, and this is for somebody who grew up in El Paso. I, I went away for a little bit, but I've been back for 16 years. Seeing the uh, effect of Beto O'Rourke, I mean, even talking about it as a, as a Beto bump, uh, has been remarkable to me because, you know, this is a hometown boy who is on national television, who is receiving national attention, who is uh, well representing this community. I mean, regardless of your political feelings, regardless of how people vote in the Senate race, he is probably one of the strongest ambassadors El Paso has had in quite some time. So I think this is a moment. There's obviously a few other pop culture and sports things going on, but I think that that really matters because as people talk about Congressman O'Rourke, there is this sense of he's from El Paso. And and again, even folks who I, who I don't think might be voting for the congressman in the Senate race in El Paso are so excited and so proud of what he is doing and the attention he's bringing to the community. Well, I think I speak on behalf of a lot of Texans to the east of El Paso who uh, are hoping that things can be patched up and soon uh, because uh, obviously there's a whole lot of affection back east for El Paso as part of Texas. We've been speaking with Richard Panetta. He is director of the Sam Donaldson Center for Communication Studies at the University of Texas, El Paso. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. You're very welcome, David. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. A new study finds women in Texas often pay more for auto insurance than men simply because of their gender. Even when factors like driving record, age, and address were the same, on average, female motorists were charged $56 more per year. That's according to a new report from Texas Appleseed, an advocacy group that promotes social and economic justice. The group analyzed online premium quotes from five large auto insurers in eight Texas cities including Dallas, San Antonio, and Amarillo. Ann Bedore is Texas Appleseed's Director of Fair Financial Services. She says they identify gender-based discrimination in all of these cities, though some were worse than others. Houston stood out as a city with the largest gender penalty, so women were charged a $75 difference compared to a similar man. Bedore says these arbitrary differences in pricing undermine trust in our market. Everybody is required to buy this product 
And when you see one group of people being charged more with no clear reason why, just because we're women, I think it really calls to question the fairness of the whole system. Bedour adds the Texas Department of Insurance bans discriminatory rates and says state lawmakers may need to look at this issue. I think a first step is always to do a more detailed study that covers more markets in Texas. Of the five auto insurers studied, only State Farm offered the same prices for women and men. The other four companies surveyed are all state farmers insurance, Geico and Progressive. The Texas Parks Department says it's concerned about the Trump administration's plans for a border wall through a South Texas park. As Houston Public Media's Travis Bubinick reports, Texas has previously told the feds the park could have to shut down if the wall gets built there. Homeland Security is planning about 17 miles of wall and road building in Hidalgo County. Part of that would cut through Benson Rio Grande Valley State Park, a local birdwatching destination. A park spokesperson says the department, quote, continues to express concerns to the federal government about the plan. As the Texas Tribune has reported, the department has previously said a wall would limit access to the park and cause safety issues that could make it hard to keep open. The department says it's committed to working with the government on, quote, alternative solutions that minimize impacts on the park but also help border security. In Houston, I'm Travis Spubinick. Much of Texas has left drought in the dust, according to a weekly report from the U.S. Drought Monitor released Thursday. National Weather Service meteorologist Richard Tinker authored that report. He says sometimes fluctuations in dry conditions can be hard to figure out, but not in this case. Right now, the situation is pretty simple. It was real dry, and then you got a lot of rain. Roughly 12 percent of Texas is still experiencing drought. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. To aid early detection, all women over the age of 40 should undergo routine screening, like yearly mammograms. More at texasoncology.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. The stories of roughnecks traveling out west during boom times in the basin is part of West Texas lore, but that story leaves a lot of people out, including the families who come along for the ride. In Midland, a tight housing market and a shortage of essential personnel and health care and education has made it challenging, to say the least, for many of those families. And when the cycle turns from boom to bust, as it always seems to eventually, what happens to those families? And where does it leave a city like Midland? Marfa Public Radio's Diana Wynn wanted to find out. Finding a house to buy in Midland can be tricky, but Maggie and Gage Nelson lucked out and found one last year in a newer Midland neighborhood for $297,000. So this is the, it's called a legacy edition. For now, the two-story, 2,600-square-foot home is enough for the couple and their eight-month-old daughter, Abby, who is cooling in her parents' laps. It's probably like any, any new build community for the middle class in America. The young family found themselves in the middle of the Permian Basin in an unconventional way. Maggie was an art teacher for several years, while Gage had aspirations of pursuing musical theater. But long story short, Gage was attracted to the career opportunities the oil and gas industry was offering. So they made the plunge, and both Maggie and Gage found jobs at Shell and Midland. But the house isn't exactly what they hoped. What was our budget? Like $330,000. We feel it's a pretty good budget. For I mean, it's our first home, and we weren't even like in the ballpark for some of the neighborhoods we, would, we wanted to be in. 
They were hoping to find something quaint, maybe historic, in a good school district their young daughter could eventually attend, but they couldn't find anything like that within their budget. In Midland, the average selling price in June was around $350,000. For renters, the average price for a one-bedroom apartment in Midland is about $1,400 a month. Bill Lanier, a real estate agent in Midland, says the market didn't always used to be that way. Historically, the attraction for employees to come to Midland years ago was our housing prices. They could buy a house for half the price and live like a king on the same salary. Well, it's turned around now. Lanier says the market is aggressive. Buyers see fewer homes and have to make decisions quickly, often within a day. But as a native Midlander, the agent thinks the city is a good place to settle down, despite the pressures families face when it comes to buying a home. But for the Nelsons, they're not so sure they want to put down roots here. Like as far as the people that have lived in Midland forever, I think it's kind of unfair to them, people like us. That's Maggie Nelson. She's aware of the impacts families like hers pose to Midland's culture. Because they're like, well, we didn't invite you necessarily to come and you're going to just criticize our town and be transient and not invest and not be a part and raise our housing prices. Transient. It's a word that comes up a lot when discussing Midland development. Today, the tall city is struggling with keeping teachers and physicians around. As the population has continued to grow, there simply aren't enough personnel to fill the positions that make a town livable. I feel that there are people who are from here and the people who are not from here who all are striving for that same thing. They want Midland to have that community, like those parks, the the recreation, the arts, the, the education. They want all those things, too. But for now, the Nelsons feel like their current quality of life isn't good enough to keep them around. This reticence is bad news for Midland stakeholders who worry about the city becoming a revolving door for families to temporarily cash in. So Midland Development Corporation, or the MDC, is stepping in. Sarah Harris works for the organization. Without supports like childcare and education, Midland is in danger of becoming a more transient community when we want to become a place where people can live, raise their family, and get an education. The MDC and the Nelsons share many of the same concerns. That's why the organization is working to fill the gaps that prevent people from staying. They're pumping the local sales tax revenue into healthcare, education, and infrastructure projects. Some see this type of development in the boom-bust nature of the oil and gas industry as risky. But Harris believes otherwise. Most of the oil industry executives in Midland indicated they see uh, more stability in the market. People think this boom might have some staying power. Companies are turning a profit at lower oil prices thanks to fracking technology. If this turns out to be true, it's good news for Midland. If they actually have a stable economy, they can improve the community for residents. And families like the Nelsons might want to stick around. We don't want to be transient. We don't want to be put an expiration date on the town because, like I said, the people are very kind. We like them a lot. They're not 100% about leaving, but maybe Midland will convince them to stay. In Midland, I'm Diana Wynn. The pinch of chill in the air finally arriving across much of the Lone Star State. And the fact that it's Friday, we hope you'll indulge us in a bit of grilling. Texas Monthly has two bits of news in this regard today. First, something new on the menu at Rice University. New type of brisket, one made without any meat. Instead, its main ingredient is vital wheat gluten. And before we leave the topic altogether, word that celebrity pitmaster Aaron Franklin has a new cookbook forthcoming that also forsakes brisket as we know it. It's all about steak. The times they are changing. 39 minutes past the hour.
Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Mike Slattery, who empowers students to save the world's remaining rhinos. More at leadon.tcu.edu. TCU, lead on. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. The Whitliff Texas Music Collection at Texas State University is quite a thing. It includes the archives of Willie Nelson and Jerry Jeff Walker. It also holds research done on Stevie Ray Vaughan and Western Swing. And while Selena, the queen of Tejano music, is also represented in the archive, a new addition to the collection greatly expands the footprint of that genre. The Whitliff says they've acquired one of the largest known collections of Tejano music materials anywhere. We're talking about one of the biggest gatherings of memorabilia on Tejano music in existence. Ramon Hernandez is the man behind this collection. For more than 35 years, he worked as a publicist, writer, and photojournalist covering Tejano and Cajunto music, building his archive all along the way. Ramon, thanks for taking some time with us here on the Texas Standard. No, my pleasure. Uh, it's quite a, quite a gift to the Whitliff Collection. When did you first become interested in Tejano music, and why does it mean so much to you? Well, uh, being uh, American and Mexican descent, uh, I grew up on what they now call Tejano music. Before that, it was on the Chicana, and before that, it was just music, period. <laughs> just music, period. I love it. Con mi alma ya cansada, mi vida ya marchita, después de andar el mundo, que mucho caminé. There, there were no texts, there were no labels back then. Yeah. You know, there are lots of different kinds of, of Mexican and Mexican-flavored music that you'll hear in Texas. What What is it that makes Tejano music Tejano music? Actually, Tejano music is the umbrella for conjunto, for orchestra, for troubadour, for mariachi. Tejano's be translating to Texan just means that it's performed by Mexican-Americans. So it's Texans performing, you know, Mexican music. I see. Now, tell us a little bit about this collection that you gathered, because I mentioned photos, and, and, and I gathered that there are posters and some rare recordings, too. You got a few of your favorite items. Uh, what, what might they be? Um, it encompasses... Uh, Photographs, recordings, eight tracks, cassettes, albums, uh, videos, publicity pictures, personal family photographs, sheet music, biographies, you name it. In fact, I understand there are some suits and outfits, too. Yeah, along the line, I had, uh, when I was working for Little Joe and her familia, I, I was at, at the recording studio, and he had a closet full of outfits, and, and he he instructed one of his guys to take him out to the to the trash can. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah. You gonna throw them away? Yeah. Can I have them? Sure. And that's how it started. Las nubes que van pasando se paran a so why did you gather those suits and outfits? Were you already thinking about maybe having a museum? I already had the idea of one day realizing a museum. Over the years, it, it turned out to be an impossible task. It, it takes money. And, and when you have a museum, you put everything in one building, and you saturate it with all these objects on display. 
it's going to be like like for the locals going to the Alamo. They'll go to the Alamo when they're in elementary school. They'll go to the Alamo uh, when they have family coming over. But other than that, they'll never go back again. And and the, the same applies to a museum. You know, once you see it once or twice, that's it. You know, you fulfilled your need to see it. So why did the Whitliff end up being the repository for this amazing collection? Well, nobody has ever been more receptive and more open. They are so supportive of music in general, whether it's jazz or blues or Tejano or country, you know. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't the exhibit so much. It was um, the items that I had collected over the years. I'm talking about catalogs from record companies that uh, were founded in the 1950s, 1960s, documents that were handed over to me as people died, they were willing, you know, items to me, photographs, complete collections of, of records. And, you know, what was I going to do with it? You know, it's nice to have the collection at home, but I wanted to share all that information with the people, with the public. What are you uh, hoping might be a, a, a good outcome for all of this material that you've that you've given Texas State? Well, study material for anybody that's uh, taken Chicano studies classes or just interested in the genre. You know, they can go in there, and once it's all cataloged, all those items, all those biographies, all those recordings will be available for the students or any anybody going to the Whitliff to to draw from. They can learn about the, the history. They can view the items. It, it's, it's basically information dissemination. I've heard people say that once upon a time in the not-too-distant past, you'd turn on the radio and you could hear Tejano music all across the dial. And that's just not happening anymore these days. you think that's fair? It's not fair, but I, I question the different uh, general managers and program directors at various stations that used to be 100% Tejano programming or have a 100% Tejano format. And the, their explanation was it's the numbers, whatever sells. We can sell more advertising by playing music originating in Mexico. And I said, well, why? Tejanos listen to, to radio? Yeah, but the Tejanos or Americans of Mexican descent, we're raised, I myself included, we're raised on jazz, we're raised on country, we like opera, we like ballet, we like, you know, hip-hop, we like reggaeton. And when we listen to radio, we tire one, one station, we flip it over and flip it over all day long. Whereas the Mexican immigrant, and we have a lot of that in Texas, listening to radio, they're listening to the music from their homeland, and they keep the dial set on that Mexican station. Igual que en tierra suelta, la humedad penetra. Y así penetras tú. So where does that leave Tejano music now? Um, YouTube. <laughs> 
internet radio stations, and there's a slew of them. So it's not gone. It's there on the internet. It'll never disappear. So how does it feel to have your collection as part of this uh, world-class repository? Fantastic. I'm glad it's got a home. I'm now 77, soon to turn 78. And I didn't want to pass and, and have all my items, you know, thrown away or, you know, going here and there. So it'll be preserved. It'll be something I, I can leave behind for everybody to, you know, learn from and enjoy. Ramon Hernandez is the musicologist behind the Tejano Music Collection just acquired by the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University, where it will remain in perpetuity. Senor Hernandez, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. We certainly do appreciate it, and congratulations. Thank you, David. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. My name is David Fruchter, and I am with the Typewriter Rodeo. A group of friends, writers who take our vintage manual typewriters, and we type poems on request for anyone who comes up and asks us for a poem. I'm an autumn. Sleeves are getting longer, short pants going out. Mercury is sliding like a spider down a spout. Break out the checkered flannel, heat the cocoa up. Better put a dram or two of spirits in the cup. Build a roaring fire. Cuddle up together. That's the only way that we'll get through this kind of weather. Although I must admit that I do find this season nifty. I know I'll be shivering tonight. It's supposed to get down to 50. My name is David Fruchter, and I am with the Typewriter Rodeo. You're listening to the Texas Standard. Support for the Typewriter Rodeo comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes in care and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. Did he say it's supposed to get down to 50? Well, get this up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You're going to see rain and lows dipping into the upper 40s perish, the thought, but uh, it could be worse, like up in the Texas Panhandle. You're talking about snow and maybe lows in the lower 20s. Yikes. Well, you know how this typewriter rodeo works, right? They run on requests. If you've got an idea for a poem, send us your suggestions on social media or email Standard at kut.org. Yeah, we got that Friday feeling, and you know what that means, right? Our weekly check-in with the Texas Tribune here to talk about the week that was in Texas politics. Trib reporter Alex Samuels. Alex, welcome back. Good to see you. Of course. Happy to be here. Uh, new poll out this week showing Senate hopeful Beto O'Rourke trailing incumbent Senator Ted Cruz by nine points. That's a much wider margin than I think a lot of people were uh, expecting to see. What's up? Yeah, so this Quinnipiac poll that just came out actually mirrors a September poll that they released Um Cruz again up by nine points in September. So this sort of so shows that uh, Cruz's lead might be stabilizing to high single digits over O'Rourke. You know, but polls are polls, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you remember 2016. Uh, so uh, what do, what are the folks, uh, you and the folks at the Trib uh, make of this? I mean, uh, do, do the numbers seem to add up? 
Um, I think that what we're seeing now is, as I said, the polls are kind of stabilizing right now. A lot of predictions are showing that Cruz has a lead anywhere between five to nine points over O'Rourke. But Mm -hmm. of course, I think the biggest measure of Cruz's uh, lead over O'Rourke, or if he has one, will be shown on election day. Yeah, the poll that matters. Right. (laughs) Uh, I think a lot of folks are wondering about uh, these fundraising numbers and how they square with the poll numbers, because uh, news just this morning about how much money Beto O'Rourke raised in the third quarter. That's a lot. Yeah, $38.1 million. That is That is quite the haul. That might be a record, I believe. <laughs> it is. It is a record. Uh, I think his campaign said it's a record for any U.S. Senate, US Senate candidate to raise in a single quarter. How much of that is from Texas? I don't think he said how much specifically came from Texas. Um, 800,000 individual contributions went into that 38.1 million number, and he did say a majority came from Texas. A majority came from Texas. And how does it compare with uh, the incumbent, Ted Cruz? So Ted Cruz raised roughly 12 million, a little bit more than that in this past quarter. But Cruz previously speculated. He said, you know, I know my opponent's going to raise a lot in the third quarter, and it's likely going to eclipse 30 million. And Cruz was correct. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how a lot of the assumptions that are sort of baked into the uh, political polls, at least, uh, ultimately shake out during the, the, the actual uh, election itself, mm-hmm. especially given that this itself is a surprise, these fundraising numbers here. Uh, voter registration wrapping up this week. Uh, what about those voter registration numbers? Uh, where, where are they right now? Sure. So I believe I read a Dallas Morning News piece about this, that as of Monday, we had 15.6 million Texans registered Mm. to vote ahead Mm -hmm. of the midterms. This is certainly a jump from the 15.2 million that were registered to vote uh, in In the the March primaries. primaries. And then if we go back to even 2014, uh, that year's midterms, there were roughly 14 million Texans registered to vote. So it seems to be increasing as the years go by. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, but of course, uh, registration is one thing, as we keep saying. It's mm-hmm. all about ultimately the turnout. And all eyes are on Texas right <laughs> now. If you want to keep up with the very latest, you ought to head over to texastribune.org, where Alex Samuels is a reporter. Alex, thanks and have a great weekend. Of course. Thank you for having me. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. With Wells Dunbar away today, the Standard Zone Michael Marks is monitoring social media. Hello there, Michael. Hello there, David. What's shaking? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I was Wrapping uh, this, it up. this is shaking me up. This uh, word of snow in the panhandle. I tell you what, man. It's... Although, to be honest, I mean, if you look at the historic trends, there's almost always. I think for almost every year. Uh, at least in recent memory, there's been snow before the end of October in the panhandle. Mm. I mean, and yeah. I think people forget that. Uh, people see these images of of a, of a snowy northern panhandle, places like Dumas, Pampa, Perryton, you know, places like that. And it doesn't necessarily jibe with, uh, you know, other, you know, sort of the, the uh, well, the, the city that we heard much about earlier in the show, El Paso. You right, know, that sure. Images of Texas. But the National Weather Service in Amarillo did tweet this morning, you are correct, say it ain't snow. That was music to the ears of some folks. Josh yeah. Brinson in Amarillo retweets that notification, says... NWS making my day early with these snow forecast. Twitter user Mr. Brownstone tweets at us when we retweeted that news. How can there be global warming if it snows in Texas in October in <laughs> oh, three, <brother>. two, one? <laughs> yeah. Countdown there, making a uh, little bit of that. Yeah. But bundle up there, panhandle. Do you want to touch on some of the reaction we got to that uh, mm-hmm. proposed divorce 
between the great state oh, yeah. of Texas and its westernmost city, El Paso. This is from an attorney in El Paso. That's correct. We should be clear. Not a proposal that has any official backing. Yeah, it's so triptalk.org, I think, is where you can find that. I believe that is correct. Uh, and it has ignited some passions over on the Texas Standard Facebook page. Janice Hitchcock in Dallas writes, I can see why they would want to leave. What is Austin doing for them other than causing them grief? I believe that's a reference to the legislature there. Mm-hmm. Jordan Peterson, however, says, great idea. Go to New Mexico, the poorest state in America. You'll definitely get the support you need then, punctuating that statement with the eye roll emoji. Worth noting, New Mexico, one of the states with the highest percentages of residents whose incomes are below the poverty line, not the highest. But Brandon Compton, a little chiding with his comment, Hmm. says in part, such hostility from my fellow Texans to ignore genuine grievances from our farthest west city Perhaps instead of being rude to this man who wrote this op-ed, how about trying to understand and help out resolve these issues so El Paso and its natives don't feel so neglected? Lastly, mm-hmm. want to share this, Daniel Hernandez. As a native Marfin, El Paso is like my second home, a definite hidden gem of the Lone Star State, the people, the culture, the way of life, all just so different from elsewhere in Texas. Much more different than New Mexico. Nothing personal, though. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to hear from you, too. You can always tweet us at Texas Standard and visit our website, texasstandard.org, where the news continues. Alas, we are out of time for the big broadcast once again. But we're going to be back here on Monday, and we certainly do hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown wishing you a wonderful and hopefully, hopefully warmer than they're predicting weekend. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com. R.I. Public Radio International.